welcome to episode 32. Today's guests join us from the US to talk about causal discovery analysis and precision medicine and how these might inform individualized treatment planning and treatment development efforts for eating disorders. Welcome to the BodyWise podcast. Welcome Lisa and Eric. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, thank you so much for having us. I, Erica, I guess I'll go first. Um, I'm Lisa Anderson. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, clinical psychologist by training, but live in the psychiatry department over here. And as we'll talk about today, I kind of live in the world of eating disorder research for most of my most of my work. So pass the baton to Eric. Hi, I'm Eric Kummerfeld. I'm a research assistant professor in the Institute for Health Informatics at the University of Minnesota. I'm primarily a data analyst and methodologist, so I develop AI methods for improving science and our ability to learn about the world. And then I also develop the best practice for those methods and collaborate with sort of domain experts like Lisa to apply these methods to make them useful and actually you know, use them for their purpose to help us learn about the world. So I I work in a lot of areas in addition to psychiatry, some things like cellular senescence, genomics, and other areas as well. But a lot of my work has been in in psychiatry, in addiction and alcohol use, and now also in eating disorders as well. Just what you said makes me wonder, do people have maybe an outdated view of psychiatry? As in, is it still thought of as maybe the person and then... The client or service user is kind of sit lying on the couch, kind of thing. That's a good question. I would be interested in knowing knowing what the the answer would be from the the person who doesn't live in the psychiatry world. But I I think yes. I feel like there's a lot of interdisciplinary collaboration, at least at least from where I'm standing in my viewpoint of lots and lots of interdisciplinary collaboration with folks in neuroscience and as right now with data science folks and kind of spanning more more than just the lying on the couch, tell me about your thoughts and feelings type of thing that's happening there. We're exploring your article, Causal Discovery Analysis, a promising tool in advancing precision medicine for eating disorders. Can you bring us through some of the terminology we're talking about here, both CDA and also precision medicine and how they came about? Yes. I can maybe speak a little bit about precision medicine history and how it came about. And then maybe since we have our causal discovery analysis expert on the call, I'll pass that that description to him. But I guess in really brief history, um, precision medicine, I I think, came out of the maybe frustration point of what what we see in kind of the traditional randomized controlled trials or RCTs that were comparing kind of big groups, group averages, and not always benefiting, seeing that not everyone benefits from these kind of quote-unquote evidence-based therapies or evidence-based treatments. And also from our anecdotal knowledge that we we know from working with folks that not everyone gets better from the treatments that we theoretically if they truly were efficacious for everyone, theoretically should help everyone. So I think the, the idea behind precision medicine came out of the literal need to, to be able to address that that state, uh, that fact that we see in, in medicine of not everyone is getting better. Maybe there are individual person-specific factors or mechanisms that we don't understand or don't know yet. And so at least in the United States, the NIH or National Institute of Health has kind of emphasized recently, well, in the last 10 years or so, right, 
trying to increase funding for an emphasis on developing methods to identify more precise ways to ideally help those people who are not getting better and to really understand the precise, specific processes through which a disease develops, is maintained, can be treated. And, and that's kind of how we're, how we're at what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> yeah. And then for CDA, so causal discovery analysis. So causal discovery is a, it's a very broad area of, I call it machine learning, mostly because it's been more accepted in the machine learning community than in the traditional statistics community, although it's sort of growing in, in that area as well at this point. With the, has a general goal of developing automated procedures based on statistics for recovering essentially like a causal model of whatever you give it data about. And this can include data that's observational instead of experimental, which is where some of the you know extra difficulty comes into play and a lot of the complicated theory comes into play of what you can learn, what you can't learn when you don't have experiments available to you. And it's again, it's a very broad kind of thing. It's not specific to psychiatry or eating disorders. Uh, it can be used and is used in a variety of other fields as well. And there's, I think we're going to talk more about some other elements to it, but there are quite a bit of complications. It's not very simple or direct to use. And right now, the number of people who are able to really effectively make use of these kinds of methods is relatively few. There's a lot more people on the AI side of things who are developing these methods, really, than there are people who have a sense of how to use them well on actual problems, with, you know, on data from actual people or other actual things. So I've been doing a lot of trying to push that, that particular area of the science forward. And this project is an example of that, where we're looking at how to take this kind of general type of tool that's not super well understood yet by most researchers, and then apply it in this particular domain to solve problems that this particular domain has. Uh, what you said about people not getting better, then the, the precision piece, I think this is really important maybe for groups like athletes, people who are neurodivergent, people who don't identify as male or female, and all of these kind of subgroups we have in this, this area, maybe where treatment hasn't quite yet hit the mark for them. Yes, I think that's a extremely relevant point. And maybe where causal discovery analysis can come into into play. <laughs> I think it's important to note that the, the causal discovery analysis here on its own is not really independently solving anything, just because it's a collection of lots of really cool, really advanced methods. It's really important also the data side here, because no, no analysis method is going to be better than the data that you can give to it. And that's one thing that there's been really just huge leaps and advances year after year in different types of data being developed. And the type of data that we're looking at here is one such example. So we can start to have the ambition of going after individual people's you know, models, creating models about how individual people behave and how their symptoms respond to their individual sort of life experiences and events because we have the type of data that we have now where we can collect repeated samples from individuals on all of these important variables, you know, about their mood and affect, stress level, other kinds of things like that. Are they spending time with other people? How much sleep are they getting? We're starting to do things where we can push cognitive tasks as part of that. So it's not even a, a question, but you can have them do a quick little task and get a sense of, 
you know, what's your memory like at this moment in time, things like that. Because these are all things that actually will change in a person's life from day to day, from hour to hour, from minute to minute, right? As I get tired, right, certain faculties are going to drop, right? If I don't get enough sleep, or if I get really good sleep, right? Or if I'm feeling really stressed and anxious because of some important event that's coming up. You know, these are all things that are changing for an individual person. And before, we didn't really have the tools to try and go after for each individual person, how do their symptoms respond to all of these things, right? Because we couldn't get enough samples from one person, essentially, quickly enough in the moment, all that kind of stuff in their daily, regular lives, right, outside of a laboratory environment. So I think this, this data te uh, collection technology is actually really, really critical and in many ways, the causal discovery is basically just a way of taking advantage of all of that data and trying to make the most and best use of it. But it couldn't do that without the, the data being available. The article brings up both network models and causal models. What are some of the differences between these? So network models, it's worth noting first, are a really, uh, it's a really general term. And within the field of psychiatry and psychology, it's taken on a very particular meaning. But as someone who does, works with network models myself, broadly, I can say that you know outside of these fields, these terms actually have a much broader meaning. So I'm just trying to separate those two things for a moment. So outside of these particular fields, network models can remain to basically refer to any kind of model where you have a bunch of objects. These could be people, they could be papers, they could be medical fields. It could be rocks, whatever. And then these objects are sort of connected to each other in a pairwise fashion. So a classic one is actually a social network. So social network models are, I'd say, outside of psychiatry, probably more well-known than these other types of models that psychiatry tends to look at. So social network model being uh, two people will be connected in the model if they are friends on Facebook or something like that, right? And so you can imagine a huge model of all the people on Facebook, and you can now start to look at who's connected to who, and then you can analyze this, this model and identify that certain people or certain Facebook pages are extremely influential, right? And they connect to lots of people. And then there's certain other types that only connect to one or two things. You can start to look at the, you know, that, that model, that type of network model that would be called like a friend network. There's also citation networks that look at papers and how much they cite each other, for example, things like that. And you identify that specific papers maybe don't get cited a whole lot, but the papers that cite them get cited a whole lot. So those individual papers, even though they get cited a lot, they might actually be extremely influential, and you can only recover that via a citation network model. So there's a lot of ways that these models get used. In psychiatry in particular, network models have taken on particular meaning, which is they look at specifically networks of symptoms, and sometimes also including outcomes, but especially symptoms and how these symptoms relate to each other. And there's actually a few different types of modeling that they use, but the most common one is something called a, well, there's a few different words for it. There's something called lasso or glasso, which produces something called a partial correlation network. And in this type of network, two symptoms will be connected to each other if they share information with each other, like if they're correlated or associated with each other, even when you control for all the other variables. This is, I'd say, sort of the, the foundational or most basic and most common network model that I've observed in psychiatry and psychology. That being said, the people who like network models have also been delving into other types uh, as well, uh, especially for the type of data that we're talking about here where you've got some time information. So there's another type of model that they use that also tries to do what I described, but also uses some time information and then tries to say that sort of 
if a past thing is correlated with a future thing, then they'll infer that to mean that the past thing is causing the future thing, for example. Conditional on the whole, everything else. I won't get into the, the nitty-gritty details. Just to point out that there are some additional things that they do. The key difference between that and sort of causal discovery models, well, for one, causal discovery isn't really a model itself, per se. It's a discovery process. It's, a, it's an algorithm that's trying to learn a type of model. And the types of model are causal models. So these are models that are specifically meant to be interpreted in a causal way. The causal model tells you directly, if you make a change to this variable, you should expect these other things to also change as a consequence. Right? So you can look at a causal model and it directly says, look, if you improve that symptom, these other symptoms should also improve as a consequence. But those other ones, these other extra symptoms, we don't actually expect to change if you treat that symptom. Only this other one will be affected by it. Right? So it, it, it's intended to give you that kind of information. Whereas the sort of traditional network models are really, these are descriptive models that describe the, the distribution of the data. They tell you things are associated with each other. This has definitely a strong correspondence to things causing each other. Right? Generally, we feel that if something causes something else, they'll be associated. Right? Where if it doesn't cause something else, they should, well, they at least may not be associated, but they still could be in a variety of ways. So in that sense, the causal discovery will typically give you a more refined set of which things may actually cause each other than a typical types of network models. But it's a little bit hard to really say a lot of specific things about either one because either one is actually, a, a, it's more than one thing. It's a collection of options. It's a space of different kinds of things. They just have some similarities within them. Causal discovery focuses on models that can be causally interpreted. They're supposed to be causally interpreted. Network analysis models aren't mathematically designed that way, but they are often used that way anyway. So that's sort of where there's a little bit of a gap, essentially. There is a section of the article which describes CDA and the identification of clinical targets and also ecological momentary assessment data. And the article also talks about how people might self-report prior to treatment using EMA tools. Yeah, well, and I think Eric alluded to this earlier when we were just introducing the the topics that we'll talk about today. But I mean, EMA is, for anyone who's not familiar with it, it allows us to do really intensive, more time-sensitive data collection in folks. And for example, I think one of the perhaps more standard EMA data collection protocols that at least we we see a lot in the eating disorders world is a two-week period where folks answer prompts five, four to six times per day, as well as maybe event-specific prompts, like if an eating disorder behavior happened also, even if you weren't prompted, try to report it when it happens. So you get a, a lot more time-intensive, person-specific data about Maybe if someone's negative affect increased, and then at that same time point that they were reporting negative affect increases, binge episode also occurred or or followed at the next data prompt. So it gives you all of that really nice, individual-specific, rich data collection. And when when we were thinking about how, how could CDA be used in combination with EMA, ideally EMA gives you great individualized rich data for an individual person. And if you're looking to see if CDA can, can be used to inform treatment planning, decisions, improve personalized treatment decisions and things like that, prior to treatment, it theoretically would be lovely to have 
ecological momentary assessment data an individual to have their kind of personalized model of what what might be a causal factor for restrictive eating, binge eating episodes, compensatory, you know, behaviors, and be able to say, oh, you know what, in this person, it is a, an increase in stress that is something that directly seems to be a causal causal factor for the binge episode that we would see next. Or in the other, the person next to them, maybe also seeking the same same goal of reducing binge episodes. Maybe it's not stress for them. Maybe it is low positive mood. That is what is is causing causal for their binge episode in terms of using individual based models and then trying to see if if those causal models can change if you get them to do another EMA protocol either during or or after the treatment. So so that is something we hope hope to see more of from folks in the future. I think there's a, there's a tendency sometimes, I've heard some in public comments, for example, people say, oh, it's about the, it's about the drive for thinness or it's about uh, building muscle. And it, it's easy to forget that that's the top of the iceberg. It's, it's what's, what's underneath all of that. And that's what you said. Maybe that, that, that EMA tool could be quite useful. Talk a little bit about the potential clinical implications of CDA and, and how you highlighted shame. Uh, we're going to, to reference a quote here. If a treatment for patients with anorexia nervosa reduces their anxiety and depression, but leaves their restrictive eating behavior unchanged, then it is not an effective treatment for their eating disorder. I can say a little and then Eric, please chime in um, as I go. So the, the shame example that we included in the paper was an individual. This is, this was actually a, a data set that we, we had access to an EMA data set for folks who have binge episode and binge eating psychopathology. And so we were looking to see, you know, compare and contrast network versus causal discovery analysis models and within the same person, would something, if you were using treatment planning approaches based on network models versus CDA models, would that differ? And and this particular shame example was something that popped out to us. In this individual, shame was the kind of causal factor, if you will, that led to the eating disorder behavior. Whereas in, and also distress, but shame was really the, the strongest causal factor there. The Network model, on the other hand, suggested that anxiety would have been the, the thing to target. And what you would think if you think about how, how I as a clinician would target anxiety, I might, might focus more on using exposure based interventions or, you know, my treatment planning would look very much anxiety focused probably. Whereas shame based interventions might include more of an emphasis on something like Treatment, treatment approaches that really build self-compassion or try to get at cognitions around, you know, inappropriate guilt and shame and things that are, are maybe not necessarily exactly what I would use for anxiety. So just kind of understanding that, that in that example, our, our hope was to show that clinically, especially if CDA could be used for treatment planning and treatment information, it could it could it, whether you use network or, or causal discovery analysis models for an individual can actually set you on different treatment paths. Ariel, I'll let you chime in if there are any other questions or thoughts that you have. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think you covered it really well, Lisa. I think that 
part of the question here also is how, again, people interpret these network analysis models compared to how CDA models kind of bring their interpretation with them. A classic way that the network analysis models in psychology and psychiatry have been interpreted for these symptom networks is they'll identify a variable that is really well connected, has a lot of relationships with other variables. It's associated with a lot of other symptoms. And they'll identify that thing, whatever it might be, that symptom, as the one to focus on with the idea that this will somehow sort of improve everything collectively, right? And this has sort of like an unwritten kind of assumption that these associations are at least going, are going in both directions, are going from the central thing outwards to the other things, right? Rather than going in the opposite direction or being confounded as in neither one actually causes the other. Some external factor that's not being measured is actually causing both of them. So the issue there being that for something like eating disorders research and eating disorders treatment, you're really focusing on the eating disorders symptoms, whereas your symptom network might include a lot of things like anxiety, shame, these other sort of typically negative things that you also may not want, but those aren't the eating disorders, right? And if you're in treatment for your eating disorders, then you ideally want to treat that that's going to really improve that in particular. And while it's certainly a positive, if your depression, your anxiety, if these things are improved, you know, perhaps treatment should, if those are important, those might be treatments that are required to target those separately, right, as part of a separate treatment. And the thing is that the, the causal discovery analysis can really help pull these things apart because of the way the model indicates that if you want to affect a specific outcome, you should intervene on these specific targets. You can directly make that read from it, right? Whereas in a more, like I said, there's many different types, but in the most basic network analysis model, you don't really get that kind of information about which direction these, you know, which things you expect to be affected by which interventions. So you could easily intervene on something that is really well connected and you could reduce a lot of these other symptoms for the patient, which could be great, but it's still not going to get at this core issue of the eating disorder, which is maybe acutely affecting this person's health and well-being in life, right? And that might be really what is the target. And that's sort of the idea from that, that quote is trying to get much more you know, precise, precision medicine towards what the intervention is that's needed to alleviate this specific outcome. And that's the idea. Is there anything here that comes to mind for Alfred, do you think? Because I know that people living with that and, and parents can feel that their voices aren't heard sometimes. That is a really interesting thought. So I, I personally don't work with ARFID very much. So most of my ARFID knowledge is, you know, based on readings and chatting with colleagues. But ARFID is one of those eating disorder diagnoses that has so many different presentations and subtypes. Not that other eating disorders, you know, diagnoses don't, but, and, and especially I think because ARFID is a newer DSM-5 diagnosis, it's, gotten less research to date than than perhaps other eating disorder diagnoses. So even just in that fact, that I think that CDA could be a great tool to kind of trying to figure out individual individual profiles of what someone might need. We already are starting kind of from a not knowledge base lacking, but but less of a knowledge base, right, of what the various presentations might might look like what the most optimal treatments might be for different people. And we only have, you know, a few symptom 
specifically, you know, sub ARFID subtypes that we've identified in the literature so far. And it's also likely there are people who, even within a certain subtype, would benefit from different approaches or focusing on different things. Like if it's a sensory sensitivity versus a fear of a consequence, and it's a certain consequence that that person is afraid of that's that's interfering with food food intake, or if it's a certain type of, of sensory sensitivity that is driving something, that might be worth knowing for clinicians and, and folks, especially in the treatment planning phase. I would love to talk with an ARFID clinician to get their thoughts on that. <laughs> I guess one thing that I'll just chime in here a little bit as someone who just had to Google what ARFID is, because again, I'm not a domain expert. I'm a, I'm a method expert, right? But related to all this, one general uh, advantage, I think, uh, or way of thinking about what we're talking about is a direction that treatment could go in, right? Collecting a certain type of data from an individual and then doing a certain type of analysis and then using the output of that to sort of inform targeted treatment. Part of the idea here is that people in general, this is not just patients, people in general have very poor insight into why we do the things that we do. And so when a behavior is something that we're trying to change, it can be really hard to figure out why that behavior is happening right now, right? And in general, obviously, if you want to make a change to how something works, you start off wanting to understand, well, how is it working in the moment, right? How is it currently working so that we can make a change to it and make it work, make things work differently? As a, my, my understanding of psychology and psychiatry is only slightly above man on the street level, but a lot of it, from my experience, it's sort of, there's a certain amount of insight that's required where, uh, you know, in therapy, they might work with the patient a lot to, to sort of get into these things, kind of what you talked about at the beginning, person sits on the couch, right? Sort of that, the idea of that kind of interaction, I think at least part, is to help develop the, the insight between the pair, right? Where the, having a second person who's outside, right, can provide a different perspective on things and ask questions the person might not be asking themselves and sort of, you know, through this cooperation, develop an improved insight about what's really going on. But obviously this is a very, you know, difficult process, requires a lot of skill on the part of the person providing therapy and, you know, you might not have any kind of short-term guarantees about how quickly you'll get to the thing you're really trying to get to. This is where I'm getting like way off talking about things I don't know a lot about. So please, please, if I'm saying things that are just totally wrong, you know, just throw me under the bus, let me know. <laughs> but anyway, the idea of something like this is to instead collect a bunch of essentially objective measures about how the person's actually behaving and, and, and things about how they're feeling just through their life, and then use essentially math to model these things, right? And come up with, well, what things did we model as being causes of the behavior? As an example from a different project, which is on alcohol use disorder, a lot of people in one collection uh, said that they drank heavily in response to their negative feelings, right? But when we modeled their behavior, for most of them, we found that to not appear to be the case. You know, when they had negative feelings or reported having negative feelings, they were not actually drinking after that or during that. In fact, their drinking was in response often to energy or to positive feelings, right? So this is just a case where, you know, at least here, I can't, you know, can't say for sure the models could just be wrong somehow. We always have to be open to that possibility. But at least there appeared to be a conflict between people's insight into their own reasons for their behaviors and what the sort of more, you know, more objective, sort of different way of trying to assess what the reasons are for their behaviors. 
And for things, especially with children, I think children are probably notorious for also having poor insight. I say with someone with the the five-year-old who often I ask, why did you do this? And I get all kinds of answers, some of which are rather mystical or simply, I don't know, (laughs) right? So I I can imagine that. I don't know how you collect exactly. I don't know if there's EMA protocols for children yet, but it's the kind of thing I could imagine being, again, sort of a really promising area for future research if the technology can continue to develop and be able to collect data from that kind of population. Well, I'll jump in just as a an side thought as well, but something that came up as Eric was talking is I think especially when we have new tools like CDA or based uh, models or even you know network models have been I think more are more familiar probably with folks in the eating disorders field at this point. Especially when we're talking about using these tools in terms of treatment planning or even maybe not even just treatment planning, but, you know, conceptualizing somebody's uh, psychopathology and then checking in to see if it's working and adjusting treatment or, you know, things like that, or even using it to say the, the model changed, treatment must have worked. I think we have to also keep a good skeptic, uh, kind of scientific skepticism lens, because this is all new. So I also think that even just having tools like a causal discovery analysis model and being able to take it to clinician teams and patient team patients and say you know does this does this kind of ring true to you the patient does this actually fly in the face of what your assumptions are as a clinician because also i think as a eating disorders clinician th- when someone says hey this person has bulimia nervosa in my mind, I almost automatically have a list of like, okay, what are the risk factors I'm going to look for? What are the potential maintenance factors? And that's a lot of times based on existing well-accepted theories that are, again, based on group norms or, you know, theoretical models, but that might not hold true for that one individual. And so being able to kind of use those tools and the models that are, you know, you could get out of those tools to even just start a conversation or challenge our own biases in the clinical world, that might also be helpful in terms of thinking about precision medicine and individualized, personal, person-specific, you know, approaches to treatment. There are some limitations to the CDA approach. Can you say a little bit about that? I've already touched upon some of these. One is that essentially right now there's not a lot of people who can use CDA really well in a real-world situation. A lot of the people who are familiar with CDA are basically pure theoretical people. They're just math nerds, and they don't know, <laughs> and they don't necessarily know how to make use of it in a real-world situation very well, right? Because real-world situations have a lot of extra complexities that are typically assumed to not be a problem when you're developing a new method. There's also, as part of that, there's a lot of options to choose from. There are actually a lot of different CDA methods and algorithms. There's, if I had to ballpark, I guess, I'd say dozens every year being developed. This number is also going up pretty rapidly. And this just makes it more, more and more difficult to develop a good protocol to make use of it. Make sure you're using the right methods for this type of data, that you have best practices in place to do it. There are also some just general limitations of the methods right now, some assumptions that are probably not always realistic, learning cycles, that is, if things cause each other or if something, you know, eventually causes itself. But if this happens really fast relative to the rate that you're collecting data, this is 
a hard problem actually, like mathematically. And so we'll, our models often will make some sort of simplifying or idealizing assumptions that this doesn't happen too much. And that there's going to be, there's just little things like that, these kinds of nuances, they're going to add small sources of error to the models, which is definitely a limitation. And those are sort of more theoretical population in terms of like who are the people that do this. And then there's also some more software issues. Again, because most of the people developing this are basically in theory land, the software for running CDA is, there's a lot of different packages that do this, but each one, these things are not trivial to implement. They're not trivial to code. And a lot of the things that are out there have bugs or errors in them, actually. So if you just use some random thing, you don't know <laughs> the quality is going to be. And a lot of them are also, frankly, really hard to use. A lot of them were made by some lab because they wanted to use it for a simulation test or for their own application or something like that. And so they know how to use it because they made it. But it's often very opaque <laughs> to anyone who's not from that group how to make use of some of these things. So there are a few sort of more reliable packages that are relatively more user-friendly, but none of it is like easy to use out of the box. And this is, again, where it interacts with there's not a lot of people that have the necessary knowledge to do it. So there's kind of a two sides of that coin, really, right? If, if the software gets developed really well at some point, maybe more people will be able to, to do this stuff as well. And now again, because these things are kind of in development, in case there's just bugs and stuff like that that need to be dealt with. So it's just a little bit messy still on the implementation side. Honestly, that's one where the network analysis stuff definitely is hands down better because the analysis methods are typically kind of simpler and easier. They're not hard to code up. They're really, you know, from the software side, they're relatively like basic algorithms. And so there's some extremely well-supported, very easy-to-use software packages for doing that stuff, which is, I think, part of why they've taken off and been so successful, actually, is because people with relatively little training can use these things and get models out of them. But then that's also the danger, because by having little training, they don't necessarily understand what the models represent, how, they're, how they ought to be interpreted, or what types of caution one should come to when using them. And and I'll say from a clinician set standpoint, I think one thing one thing of course that Eric mentioned is you know the usability. Can you take CDA models as a kind of clinician who's not living in the research world and has access to an Eric, a Dr. Eric Kummerfeld? <laughs> um, and how how would you be able to access those and, and have someone to do? to at least provide them for you, as well as kind of interpret or help with interpretation of the output. And the other thing I think that maybe is is general, no matter what type of model you're getting or what source you're getting a model from, is the the limitation that as a clinician, you have to know it, it is just a model. So it's not the end-all be-all of this has come out of an individual's two weeks or whatever your, you know, whatever your data is set of data. And so you're, you're capturing something based on those two weeks. It, it may, may or may not truly reflect exactly what's going on for this person. Something may shift or change throughout treatment. If you are using it to kind of inform treatment planning or treatment decisions, as well as I think in order to use the models, you do have to make sure that you are someone who kind of understands at least a uh, baseline knowledge of the e the research that's out there on etiological models and have a familiarity at least with the data that you're getting so that you can look at the model and evaluate and say, you know, yes, this this makes sense. Or if it's something that, again, as my, my intro to stats professor would have said, garbage in is garbage out, right? You, you have to make sure that 
what you're basing your treatment plans or your your conclusions on is better than garbage. <laughs> it was very reliable, hopefully, data. And what do we need to think about for future research? Oh, man, I have some thoughts. And then Eric, I'm sure, also has some th- very, very valuable thoughts. I think for future research, I mean, we focused a lot in this p- particular paper on ecological momentary assessment, but there are so many, as Eric has, has mentioned already, so many different types of variables that you could have and include in a model. And I know there are people in our field who are doing really interesting work with, you know, even more real-time data, like getting wearable sensors and accelerometer data um, that tells you about someone's behavior, like physical behavior and physiological response. And um, I think there, I, I should know the names and I am failing to recall them, but there are folks in our field who have really interesting data on, you know, this physiological event happens and that is a predictor of, you know, binge eating episodes later on in the day or, Even cognitive things like planning, we don't necessarily, at least in our EMA protocols, ask someone, are you currently planning a binge for later? But I think there's data coming out that suggests that there's a subset of folks with bulimia nervosa and and potentially binge eating disorder who plan a binge episode um, later in the day. And that anticipatory reward process, I don't know how you would capture that or uh, you know, it, with EMA protocol, but it's probably a process that is worth being able to account for in, in individual models. So I think figuring out all of those questions and how to integrate all of that type of data would be amazing future research directions, as well as kind of we proposed maybe using CDA to inform treatment planning and examine whether that actually improves an individual personalized model type of treatment outcome. But no one's actually done that yet. So if anyone wants to do that, I would say that is the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> awesome. I agree with that. I agree with everything Lisa said. On the on my side of things, I sort of hinted at some of this already. I think definitely we need better software, essentially, to create visualizations and, and to really package the information in a way that will be more understandable and useful both to the patient and to the provider. You know, I've, because we're just basically using our voices in this, it's hard to really express how much information and how complex these models can be. They're very visual models, actually. They're most naturally captured in a, in a, in a picture that shows each of the little symptoms or other things you've got modeled sort of as a, as like a dot or a shape and then shows all the relationships as lines and arrows that connect them. And it really forms a very, it forms an image that can be either easy or hard to pull information out of, depending on the image that you get. And it's actually been a thing on my to-do list for a long time to, I'll, I'll put it in more polite words, but essentially says, make a visualization algorithm that isn't bad. <laughs> Because the ones we have right now, I think, are not very satisfying, for example, right? Um, And this is, again, just one of the things that's sort of a hurdle towards the dream that we have of this procedure, this process, where you use this to really learn in clinics all over the place without having a a modeling expert on hand. You can just collect data. It will go through this process. You'll get an image out that you can maybe even interact with that will show you really the most relevant and important information both to the 
the patient and to the provider so that they can make good decisions together and decide if they think certain parts of it are wrong or whatever. They have that sort of discussion potentially. So we're not really just at that point in the, in the software, even in the technology. I think a lot of the theory is, is there to support things, but the technology is still lacking. I have a small grant out, so hopefully we'll get a little money to try and, try and make a, uh, such a, a visualization software that is not bad. But we'll, we'll see. That's, that's, in our, that's in our goals. And then, yeah, I agree, especially just testing. We just got to do it. You know, what we have right now is not great. But I do know some people that are trying to do this actually in the clinical environment, and sort of facing <laughs> head on the uh, all these issues and all these problems, and, and identifying where things aren't working and what we really need. Because they're trying, they're just trying to do it. They're just saying, you know, it's not perfect. We're going to try to do it and just see where the problems are, and then that's how we know where we need to do work. So there's definitely some more nuanced things with the technology that I know from from that person need to be developed, which I won't get into here because it's very technical, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that direction as well. So I think there's, on the clinical side and on the technical side, the technical side is not as mature as it needs to be to really make this something that will affect a lot of people and improve lives at a, on a larger scale. Where can people find it more if they're interested in precision medicine and CDA? Well, I would say that we are in the presence of one of the experts on CDA. <laughs> so Dr. Eric Kummerfeld is the head of one of the, I would say, one of the most knowledgeable causal discovery analysis groups at, at, here at Minnesota. There are other folks that Eric can tell you more about. And I would say for, for precision medicine, especially in the eating disorders field, I feel like I have turned most frequently to kind of general precision medicine references from like the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute of Health, because I think the eating disorders field talks about precision medicine quite a bit as an as an ultimate goal, but we don't necessarily have a lot of people doing it. And and I'll say, you know, myself myself as an example, this is an idea paper of just talking about it, but no, we haven't, you know, necessarily actually done the work. Um, and so being able to to find the people who have done the work perhaps in other fields, that would be my inclination for good starting points, at least on the precision medicine side. And then Eric, I will refer to you always for the, the causal discovery analysis side. <laughs> for people interested in causal discovery analysis, my, my first words are, it's hard. <laughs> this is an area that has unfortunately doesn't really have a, like a really good educational external source. There are some um, lectures that can be found online. Uh, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh has some recordings from a summer school that they run on causal discovery. So you can watch some of those. Uh, Richard Shinus, I think, is the one who's doing the speaking for a lot of those. Those can be good. There are some, also some, some talks by Frederick Eberhardt and a few other people. Causal discovery in general builds out of the same kind of framework as a lot of uh, causal inference work that has been coming up. I won't get into the specifics of what makes these two things not the same. And some people argue they are not actually different. So there's all that. But there is actually a book by Yuta Pearl called The Book of Why. This, uh, it's certainly at least the first half of it, is a good intro to the history of causal inference and causal modeling. And talks about some of why this approach generally has not been as widespread. There's still very common misconceptions that are very widely had, held by 
lots of very smart, very educated people that causal inference or learning causal information is impossible from this type of data, from non-interventional data or from cross-sectional data, these sorts of things. But there's a lot of theory that says otherwise, and people have gotten very important, even awards. It's widely recognized at the same time that these things can work. Peter Pearl got the Turing Award many years ago. The recent Nobel Prize in Economics, the recent one, went to people who do work in causal inference as well. So um, this is sort of a, a general thing where it's becoming more widespread. But there's just not a lot of information that's stored in a nice way about causal discovery in particular. There are some good books or better books about causal inference, which is more about questions, does one thing cause another thing? I'm kind of leaving at that point. But causal discovery, which is more about here's a collection of things, how do they all fit together? Right? Kind of this bigger picture kind of question. There really isn't a solid single place right now. So like I said, there are these online lectures, some of these kinds of things. But the books that I would use as a reference, for example, I wouldn't recommend anyone to read as a <laughs> as a way to learn about it because they're very they're very obtuse in their language, very very technical and very math oriented, and don't really help a person understand what this stuff is and how it fits into the world. So the other way I would look at it would actually be looking at some of the application papers. You know, the paper that sparked this discussion, for example more of a thought paper than an application paper in some ways, but it has some applications in it and shows some images. And that's going to be ultimately the kind of thing that helps most is just to see what the output of this stuff is, right? What does a causal model look like when it's been visualized? And then once you start to see it, you can start to get a sense of how this would fit in with other things. So, oh, I can, I can make something like that. I can make an informative image like that from a bunch of data. Oh, that's really cool. And you can imagine now a lot of other, a lot of other applications because this, like I mentioned before, this is being applied in a lot of other places. We're also using it right now, for example, on spatial transcriptomics data to understand cellular senescence and what it means for aging and all of these other kinds of things, right? Which, you know, don't look anything like psychiatry, right, in terms of the domain and the practice, right? But from the modeling side, again, these are sort of general models. Yeah, I think that's that's the main thing for me. It's it's just an unfortunate part of causal discovery. The people that understand it are mostly know someone who understood it before them. <laughs> There's, it's sort of a it's sort of a family of researchers that are spread around the world that we mostly know each other and recognize each other's names and that sort of thing because in part there's no good external resource where a person can just independently learn all the nitty gritty details about how this stuff works. And I'll put in a quick a quick shout out to that paper that Eric just referenced. But Britt Stevenson is the lead author on that paper. And it was looking at using causal discovery analysis models to kind of understand the heterogeneity in the alcohol and mood relationships that you oftentimes see in substance use disorders. And so that that is a paper I'm happy to send along the citation, but it's in the, the paper that we're actually talking about today in the reference list. But that that I think was the, the idea generator for us in terms of reaching out and getting started with Eric. And I will say from a non-CDA world person, assuming that everyone is as lovely to work with as Dr. Kummerfeld, <laughs> if anyone is interested in, in applying CDA models to what you're studying and looking at, it's been a, a lovely working relationship. So Say the same with working for Lisa. It's been a great pleasure. I had a last-minute thought about, about body image, actually, because... That's something, obviously, it's, it's very low body image or negative body image is so pervasive in, in the world we live in and has been for quite a long time and might not always lead to an eating disorder, 
what can have uh, other implications around risk for mental health issues? That is a fascinating question. Yes. So if anyone has if anyone has interesting body image data, that would be a fascinating question to look at with this method. Thank you very much. I think this has been a very behind the scenes look at how, how kind of research works and, and what you've shared with us today. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. This is great. That brings us to the end of this episode. You can find a reference to Eric and Lisa's article in the show notes. Thank you for listening.